Warning, this episode contains content about drug addiction. Drug addiction wasn't what broke me. It was a symptom of my brokenness. This episode is brought to you by The Parlor Hair and Body Salon. With a quick reminder, it's okay to take time for yourself. Hi, I'm Chelsea. You're listening to Beyond the Picket Fence, where you're invited to take a break from keeping it together. Let's get real. This week, I bring you an incredible story of redemption and rescue. If you've listened to The Convicted Woman, you'll recall Portia mentioning her friend Eric. If you haven't listened to that, go do it. It's amazing. (laughs) Anyway, I got connected with Eric, and sure enough, he was so willing to come on and open up about life as a felon and a drug addict. And what rescued him and changed his life? I am Eric Kellogg's, and I am, gosh, 50... I'll be 52 this year. I spent 30 years of my life as a drug addict. My drug of choice was heroin and cocaine, but I would also do anything I could get my hands on if those drugs weren't available. I spent every waking hour trying to figure out how to be high, how to stay high. And um, to be honest with you, I don't know when it all began. When I was a teenager, early teen, I started experimenting with marijuana. I liked that. And it was very euphoric at at that point in my life. And then off and on, I would try alcohol. And then one opportunity when I was at a difficult time in my life and uh, presented itself for me to use cocaine. And I did. And then I didn't use it again for quite a while, actually. And then as life got harder, Drug became more available, and that's what I used to deal with things. I thought it made sense to me. I couldn't figure out what to do in life. And so when I would get high, those feelings would go away. And that made sense to me. I was like, okay, now I don't have to deal with life, and I can just keep on doing this. But eventually, it catches up. It catches up. Eric was eager to get to the next part of the story, but I really wanted to get a little bit more into those 30 uncomfortable years. You said that you went from marijuana to cocaine because life got difficult. So what was that difficult thing? Do you remember? Well, yeah, it was just dealing with emotions. Like as you're growing up, you start to face different things. Like I had a girlfriend and she got pregnant and she had a baby. Now here I am, this guy that does not even know how to do life on my own. And I had a child and I had a living girlfriend and we had bought a house and I didn't know how to deal with any of these emotions. And when anything would go wrong, I would get so stressed out that all I knew how to do was turn away from him. Eric was 23 when all of this happened. I wondered what his childhood was like. Eric had two brothers, one older and one 10 years younger. He grew up with both parents in the home, but they were not taught the best communication skills either. Mom and dad were married. But, you know, you kind of get the feeling like, are you doing this for us? Because you guys just don't even seem to like each other. (laughs) It was kind of like that. And there would be a lot of arguments. A lot of times, yeah, it was just difficult. And the interesting thing is, I I didn't know this then, but I know it now. They didn't know how to deal with it either. And so they couldn't teach me. And therefore, that's how I thought all grownups were. And I thought, well... If that's how life is, I'm just going to escape it. Fast forward to when Eric had a son and a girlfriend, and he just didn't have any coping skills. So I asked him to explain a little bit more about how life was a struggle at this point. How does life get harder from there? And did you work while you were on drugs? Most of my younger years, I did. Like, I knew it was really important to work, you know, and be supportive, and obviously bringing money into the house to pay the bills. And she worked. She worked too, actually. She worked really hard and we never got married. She wanted to get married, but it didn't seem like that's what I wanted to do. Although I did, but I avoided it and I avoided it to a point where, and then all of a sudden she didn't want to anymore. And in fact, she's like, you need to go. (laughs) So, I mean, there was a lot, you know, in those years that I just didn't understand. So using the drugs made it easier for me because She was ready to be a wife. She was ready, you know, she already was a mother, but she was ready to 
take on that role. And as she was becoming the mother and growing into that role, I was being very rebellious to that. So eventually she seen that's how I was going to be. And she just said, that's it. Well, I don't even want to do it anymore. And of course that made me mad. And I acted like, you know, she's taking my family away and my children or my child. And so I rebelled and, and got angry like any other child that doesn't know how to deal with their emotions, what they do. And actually, then I thought it would be a good idea to start selling cocaine at that point in my life. <laughs> so, yeah, that somehow, it doesn't make any sense at all. But at that point in my life, it didn't make sense to me. And so I began selling cocaine. And I grew, I got really good at it, actually, but I never dealt with my emotions. And I continued like that all the way up until the first time I went to prison. And I've been to prison twice. I've been, I was in jail. I've been arrested 17 times. And uh, that became my life, just selling drugs and going to jail. And the first time I went to jail, had it been, if it was not my first time that I got arrested, I would have been in there for a long time. They tried to get 20 years to do 10 and uh, they gave me mercy because I was a first time offender. So I only ended up with six years and they suspended uh, four of the years and it, was, it ended up being a two to one. And I got out and had two years of probation. Okay, this got a little confusing for me. So in case you don't understand all those terms, let me clear everything up. He was charged with four counts of class A felonies. His lawyer got two charges thrown out and his other two reduced to class B charges. Because it was his first offense, he got it reduced to six years. He went to prison for a year, then came out on house arrest for two years while he was on probation and was released two years early for good time. During that, he went to nursing school, met a girl and got married and had a baby. I was ready to change my life, but guess what? I still didn't know how to deal with my emotions, even though I knew how to work hard and I knew how to, you know, I went to school. I got a nursing degree, like two weeks after I got out of jail, I was working full time. Within a month, I was enrolled in nursing school and uh, I graduated to top of my class with a 4.0 GPA. And because I had a felony, I had to sit in front of the Indiana State Board uh, of Nursing. And they unanimously agreed, yeah, you know, you're doing it. We're going to let you take the NCLEX, the, uh, the certification program. And so I took that and I found out on the way to take that test that my wife was cheating on me. And, what? and yeah, and I went in there and I failed miserably. I failed the test. Ugh, what unfortunate event with unfortunate timing. How did you find out? And how long had you been married? We had only been married... Probably a year, passed between a year and two, a year or two at that time. Okay. Uh, and you were yeah, clean we, at that point? Yes. I was clean from drugs, but you know, you hear that story about you can trade anything for drugs. Guess what? I traded marriage and kids for, for my drug addiction okay. because it's, so I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but we were having trouble and I didn't know how to deal with that. And, um, I was on my way to take the test and I called her phone and she didn't answer. And back then, if you knew the access code to somebody's voicemail, you could listen to their voice messages. I don't know if it's still like that or not, but that's what I did. Nowadays, I would never do anything like that. But then I felt like something was wrong and that I needed to find out what it was. Well, then I hear a message from one of her friends talking about a date with this other guy. And I'm like, wow. And I was crushed, completely crushed. And I went into that test that way. And even being, you know, I mean, I was summa cum laude, fight the capo, all that. But when I went into that situation with that stuff on, on my heart and on my mind, I failed the test, just bombed it. Oh, <laughs> yeah, really all, sad. It was, it was so sad. Eric could have retaken the test but couldn't handle his emotions again and wouldn't attempt to go in front of a board now with his history of felonies. I was feeling super defensive for him and going off on how no one should cheat, which is true, but it's a testament as to how a person can really change because he had no hard feelings and he helped me see, though no one should cheat ever, period. 
the story is not always one-sided. You know, the, the crazy thing now is looking back, I didn't have anything to offer her. I, I know that that sounds like I'm being harsh to myself, but it's not because here's the thing. I still hadn't grown up. I was like a 15-year-old boy in a young man's body and didn't know how to process emotions, didn't know how to deal with things. And it was interesting because I remember when she met my parents, she said to me, I'm afraid you're going to be just like your father. And here's the thing. I was just like my father at that point in my life. And so I hadn't taken on responsibility or dependability or any of those things. And uh, my anger still ruled my life at that time. I don't hold it against her. I don't hold it against her at all. In fact, I think she probably made the right decision, to be honest with you, because, well, now that I know where I'm at in my life, had she not done that, I never would have gotten there. I don't believe. After failing the big nursing test, this marriage drug on for another two and a half years. It became a pattern where they would try to work it out. Then four to six months later, she would have an affair. Then Eric would forgive her and they would try again. In that time, he had found a job making good money and it just never worked out to take that test again. It wasn't until the divorce that the addiction got really out of hand. That's when it all fell apart. And I tried to hold it together for about, for about a year year and a half. And then uh, I just started messing up my job. I just started messing up everything in my life, basically. And so it all fell apart at that point. And uh, I lost everything. It was so bad that even his two brothers tried to give him an intervention. I'll never forget that. They came over and they tried talking sense to me and it didn't make any sense to me at that point in my life. And I said to my, my older brother, that I am making a conscious decision to throw it all away. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, what? <laughs> I was like, I don't know what I'm saying either. <laughs> Just because it was so hard to deal with the anger and the emotion. Yeah. Yeah. I just couldn't face it. I didn't know how to face it. And I really. What were you angry about? Just, you know. That's an interesting question. I don't know that I could put my finger on one specific thing. I think I was angry that I didn't know how to deal with my anger, that I didn't know how to deal with emotion, that I didn't know how to deal with, you know, and you hear the, all these stories about, like, I remember hearing from guys that I was friends with about how to treat women and, and I would try that. And it was horrible. I mean, it was just, you know, if you treat them like you don't care and this, and all these things, and you know, but to me, I thought, well, maybe that is good. Well, but it's not good advice. It's horrible advice. And all it does is teach you to be in a worse place than you already are. So yeah, it was, it was horrible. I was really sensitive growing up. And because of that, the things that I needed, you know, that affection and that closeness, I didn't have. And so that made me angry, you know? Yes. <laughs> That's a really big question. I mean, I'm still finding out different reasons that I was upset in my youth and been working on it hard now for five years though. But I can honestly say that I, that I do face my emotions, that I evaluate them daily in fact. And, uh, yeah. And so, so that, that part is pretty me that I'm being bled and taught and mentored, I would say at the age I am now, I mean, I'm, getting ready to turn 52. And, uh, you know, this is something that a lot of people have in their lives and, and their youth and their childhood. And then they grow into that in their teen years. And, you know, when they're in their early twenties, they're becoming a, a man or a, a woman, you know, that, that is healthy and is balanced and has all these things. <laughs> that's how it appears, but I'm not sure that's really how it goes. <laughs> I'm like 30 and I'm just now like going to therapy and sorting everything out. But <laughs> I'm just the lucky one who doesn't have as hard, it's called like a buffer when you choose to do something to numb something, right? So I just, yeah. I just didn't choose drugs. I just chose comparing myself to everyone on Facebook and scrolling and yeah. I chose less bad things. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's definitely something in there. Yeah. But I don't think I figured it out. <laughs> well, you will though. You will though. When I'm 52. When you're 52. Yeah. Yep. After this divorce is really when things got heavy. 
I wanted to know his uh, crime resume, if you will, and how much time he has spent in prison. Well, total time in prison, I've only actually spent um, two years. And that was broken up because I was always able to get into some kind of program or some kind of house arrest. You know, it was all these things. Well, let's see. I'll, I'm going to see if I started I'll start at the uh, most recent word back. I'll probably give you the top hits anyway. So corrupt business influence, failure to pay child support, gosh, countless possessions, paraphernalia and narcotic drugs and controlled substances. And of course, dealing, that was the, the biggest one. It, to be honest, it's kind of surreal when I think about all of the, like the ATS has been after me before. I've had big that? that alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, the ATF. Oh my gosh. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That was different. But you know, it was, it's strange. Now when I look back at it, I'm like, man, I can't believe all that was going on in my life. But at that point in my life, I was just like, this is the life I lead. And like, it was no big deal to me. I didn't think much of it, to be honest with you. I mean, they would show up on my doorstep, you know, all these squad cards everywhere. I've had them show up and just be like, oh, we just want to talk, you know, and talk me for information, all kinds of stuff. It's kind of crazy. It's kind of crazy. Like I've had different, which I'm not going to name these, but I've had different gangs after me, different things like that. And it's not a life. It's no life that you all need. Yeah. You felt good about it because you felt like it numbed your, like you were numb. So you well, just- yeah. I like, like it, there was a point in that using part of my life where I was like, resolved to i'm just going to be the best gangster i can be (laughs) you know like like this is what life is and this is what i'm going to do and this is the way to get there and i was just climbing the ladder just like you would do in a corporate world you know and whatever was necessary to do that that's what i resolved to do he explained to me how this time period he would lose everything he could think of at least four houses right off the top of his head that he could remember losing one I actually did sell. One I bought it and I never made that one payment on it. That's, that's how messed up it was. I was able to get into it. And then my drug addiction was it was beginning to roll at that point in my life. And that's the one where they did the intervention on me. And like I just thought I didn't have to pay for it. Like I had a cash in a pension from working for five years. I had built up a little bit of a, you know, 401k and I cashed that out and I was living on that thought I had a plan and it, but none of it, it was all ridiculous. None of it makes sense. And if I look, I look at, back at it now and I'm like, what was I thinking? How did I think I was going to get away with doing all that? So it was in and out of work release, prison, jail. That's the life that I led for a very long time. Eric was never homeless. His father had passed away in 2009 and his mother, however, still had the family home. So that's where he would go. Every time he would lose everything, she would try to get him back on his feet. He always wanted to change, but never could make it stick. There was points where I was employed for six months at a time, you know, but all my money always went to drugs because if I wasn't, I was always using. And if I wasn't selling, there was nothing extra. Like I would take my last $20 bill and go get drugs. And there wouldn't be no food. There wouldn't be no gas in the car. And I wouldn't think about, well, how am I going to get to work for the whole entire next week? Well, don't worry about that when that comes. I asked him straight out, what does a day look like for a drug addict? The daily life of a drug addict, somebody like me that was that far gone. I remember times when I would have nothing. I remember being in the middle of the winter, living in a trailer. And I don't know if you know how cold it is in Indiana during the winter. Well, it gets down to like, you know, 15 below zero, the mm-hmm. wind's blowing. And I mean, it's cold. Well, I wouldn't have no heat. Like my gas would be turned off. My electricity would be turned off. I had a kerosene heater sitting in the middle of the living room. And I had blankets over every doorway and window. So I was only actually using one room in that trailer. And everything I own smelled like kerosene. My clothes are dirty because I, I can't even afford to wash my clothes because if I give any money, I'm getting drugs. And the worst of it was being completely by yourself. 
Like the only time that you were ever around anybody is when they were trying to get something from you or you were trying to get something from them. I remember, and this was after all my kids were born at this point, and I would be just dirty all by myself, wouldn't have any drugs many nights and would be crying myself to sleep, wrapped in a dirty blanket, trying to figure out how in the heck I got to that point in my life. That was pretty much what a day was like. And, and whether a person is actually at that point, that's really the picture of a drug addict's day-to-day life, even if they do have some electricity on. But their spirit really is, that's still where they're at. Because who in their right mind, who in their right mind says, I'm going to start using this drug that I've been told ever since junior high school that if you do, you're going to lose everything in your life. And in, in trying to describe that to somebody, they don't really grasp that. But who would say yes to that if they weren't already broken? Nobody. Nobody. So anybody that's, so let me say it like this. Drug addiction wasn't what broke me. It was a symptom of my brokenness. Beautiful. Let's take a break. Do you ever feel a little bit exhausted by your social media feed? Seeing everyone else's perfect moments and forget to remember that they have a whole life going on behind the scenes? Well, join us in our free Facebook community. This community is our secret little place to escape all of the perfection we see here on social media and connect with women just like you who are ready to be done comparing and start being compassionate to themselves and others. Find it at facebook.com slash groups slash beyond the picket fence. Link also in the show notes. Can't wait to see you in there. Back to the story. Eric has lived a hard, long life of not dealing with emotions, which led him through a hard life of drug addiction and crime. When he was 47, his life really began. So let's fast forward all the way up to I'm 47 years old, November 7th, 2017. I was on the run and uh, I just got back in town from Detroit, Michigan. I was hiding out of my mother's house. My mom, she's such an angel. And she's like, well, just come here. And if they call and ask, I'll just say you're not here. And uh, I felt kind of bad about that. But I was like, that's really the only place I got to go. And I went there and mom went to work and her husband was there, but he was easily. So my mom at this point was in her late sixties, but her husband was like 20 years older and he's there, but he's not there. You know what I mean? Yeah. (laughs) So the police start knocking on the door and I'm peeking out through the window and I'm like, crap. I, I mean, I just got back in town yesterday and they're already here. I'm like, man, what am I, what am I going to do? So, all right, hi. They come in, they ask him where I am. And he's like, I don't know. He was here. (laughs) (laughs) It was kind of funny. I was like, why did you say that? (laughs) But uh, they find me in the closet. And I still remember coming out of that closet like, man, I'm, I'm so busted. I got a lot to deal with now. But I remember also, as they put the handcuffs on me, kind of thinking to myself, it's time. It's time. I'm just so over this life. I don't want to live like this anymore. Somewhere in all that crazy 30 years, he had married a woman who was also on drugs. So this would be wife number two. I told my wife at the time that I'm, I'm going to be gone for a while. This one's going to take a little while. And uh, she's like, okay, you know, I'm like, I get it. And um, they take me to jail and uh, I'm unhappy that I'm there. And the one feeling that you always get when you go into jail is, I can't wait to get out of here. I can't wait to get out of here. That starts on the first day all the way up until the last day. Always. It's always been that way. I've been in jail many, many times. And I've always felt that same feeling. Well, they check me in. I get processed into the jail. They move me up on the box. And many times I had tried to read the Bible when I was in jail. Never understood a word of it. Never understood any of it. I was like, what are these people talking about? This is irrelevant. This doesn't make any sense. How is this going to help me in any way, shape, or form? But I would do that. I would, every time I would go to jail, I'd try to read it. Well, this time, I'm sitting there reading it, and this guy walks by me, 
And he says, oh, you got jailhouse religion. And normally that comment would anger me and I, I would say something, you know, and this time I didn't. It was the strangest thing because for me, like I just looked up, I smiled and I looked back down at the Bible and I thought to myself, that's weird. <laughs> that's weird that I'm not reacting. But all of a sudden I knew that it was my choice to react or not. And uh, that was the first time that ever happened to me in my life. So, so anyway, the thing that it did cause me to do was I began to pray, you know, I didn't even know how to pray, but I was like, God, <laughs> I don't like the way that man talked to me. And I really just want to punch him right in his face. But I think he's right. I think, I think he's right that I got jailhouse religion. And almost instantly, I felt in my spirit, the Lord said to me, this is the only place that you let me in at all. And then I had this realization. I was like, I'm keeping you out. He says, yeah, you're keeping me out. And I had no idea. I didn't know anything about faith. So, so to me, that was just this, this weird thing. And I thought, if that's true, then I got some things to think about and some things to, to evaluate. Well, I began feeling this feeling that I couldn't explain and I couldn't put my finger on it, but I would be talking to my mom and my ex-wife on the phone. That I'm like, something's going on. I don't really know what it is, but I got this thing going on. Like, like it's different. You know, of course they've heard this many, many times. So to them, they're just like, okay, yeah, whatever. And that was pretty much the response. Well, this went on for around 40 days and I dealt with my thing there. And I ended up with three years of probation and uh, I was getting transferred to another jail. And I get into that jail and it's interesting because I'm in a processing cell. There's like six, seven, eight guys somewhere in there. And they're, you know, sitting on the benches, laying on the ground, wrapped in covers, you know, some of them are talking. And uh, one of the guys that I started talking to, he points to a guy that's laying on the ground that's all wrapped up in this blanket. He says, whatever you do, don't get that guy talking. And me being me, I was like, that's my cue. Hey, buddy, what are you doing in here? And this guy became very animated and he threw his blanket off, you know, came up to his knees. And I didn't think much about it at the time, but this guy has long straight hair, he has a, a goatee. It was like manicured. It was like perfect. And I was like, that's, that's strange. But I didn't think nothing of it at the time, really. And he just begins to, to go on. Looks like you would, you would think that guy's not all there. He's like, well, I'll tell you what I'm doing here. He says, I was walking down the road, minding my own business, and the police came up, and they got loud with me, and I got loud with them, and they handcuffed me, and they bring me here, you know? And he's like, this is the land of the free. People have fought and died for people to be able to move freely around this country. And he said, that's all I was doing. He says, matter of fact, he says, don't let nobody tell you that you're not important. And he begins to point around the room. He's like, you're worth a million bucks. You're worth a million bucks. You're worth a million bucks. Of course, this about this time, I was going to tell that guy, my bad, I said, we got this guy talking. <laughs> well, as I turn to look at this guy, he is staring off into space. And I start to look around the room and guys are wrapped up in their blankets, staring out the window, not the window outside, window just to the other part of the jail. There was no windows. And uh, just nobody is paying attention. It was really strange. And I began to feel this, like this weirdness just kind of filled the air. Well, as I turned back to this guy that was talking, that was saying, you're worth a million bucks, you're worth a million bucks, he's quiet. And when I turned to him, my eyes and his eyes locked. And he just raised his hand and he points right in my face and he goes, it's time for you to awaken from your slumber. And I was like, say what? <laughs> and I said, what do you say? And he goes, you're worth a million bucks, you're worth a million bucks, you're worth a million bucks. And I was like, Man, I don't know what happened there, but it was really scary. I don't like the way it felt. And I'm used to living in denial, so I'm going right back into denial. I'm going to act like that didn't happen because he's not acting like he knows that he said that. So it was a weird rest of that day. But the next day, I get transferred into the, into the jail, and uh, they give me my Bible back. And I went in my cell, and I just opened my Bible like that. And something just said, put your finger down. And I did. I put my finger down. It was on Ephesians 5.14, and this is what it says, awaken you who slumber, for rise, and Christ will shine his light on you. And like, I about fainted, you know? <laughs> I was like, what just happened? How did that happen? But more precisely, I started thinking to myself, God is real. 
God is really real and he's doing something right now. And then I started to realize this happened over months and months, but I started to realize that feeling that I couldn't explain in that first jail was he was beginning to pour out his peace into my heart and I couldn't identify it because I never had it. And if I ever did, it, I didn't remember what it felt like. I didn't know it. So I couldn't put my finger on it. And the thing is, is I know that the angel came down from heaven and landed in that man, spoke to that man, because it was time for my spirit to be awoke. It was time for my spirit to meet the spirit of God. And my entire life, everything changed in that moment. I mean, here it is five years later, I'm still catching up to that moment. Because in that moment, I know that I was sealed. I know that, that the Holy Spirit lived in me at that moment. But even more so, it began to change things outwardly. I had like Bible studies. I was leading like three Bible studies a day. And I had no idea what I was doing. The only way that I could actually do that is because the Holy Spirit was leading me to lead others to do that. So I got transferred to the last jail because that jail was overflowing. And I'm like, okay, well, at that point in time, I didn't realize that God was completely sovereign. Although I am Christian, the word sovereign wasn't one that I was familiar with. I just smiled and nodded because his story was really so beautiful that I just didn't want to interrupt. Maybe this word is common knowledge, but either way, I wanted to just define it for you all. Sovereign means supreme power or authority. So what he's saying is that God is in charge of every little thing, even as small as getting him moved from one jail to another. I had no idea that God was able to move me around like that. I got moved to another jail just because that jail was overflowing. And then I end up what's called the honor dorm. Like there's flat screen TVs, you know, there's DVD players, really good commissary, real showers, real toilets, real sinks. I mean, like pretty good accommodations for jail. There was no cells. It was all open dorm and uh, everybody was on the lower level. There weren't bunk beds. I mean, it was for jail. It was pretty nice. The guards would bring my newspaper in every morning. Okay, this is my second interview with someone that has been behind bars, and they both are really making it sound lovely. <laughs> the thing that I realize about jail is, is, is when you begin to say, but God, and realize that he's in control, all of a sudden where you are is the place to be. It doesn't matter where you are, because the first time I ever felt free, I was behind bars. First time I ever felt free. So all these things started changing. They would make fun of me. And like, I was like, let's start a Bible study. It's me and one other guy. They make fun of you. They're snickering at you and they laugh at you. And then the next thing you know, they're asking to join. It's kind of this feeling where you're like, I'm not really sure. I mean, you're like, yes, absolutely. You could join. But you're like, what is going on? Well, see, I've never seen God work in my life or anybody's life around me. So when I began to see that, I was like, this is amazing. Eric was in the dorm where the workers were, and word started to spread. The morning shift guys wanted to be part of it too. Then the next shift caught wind. Before he knew it, he was leading three separate Bible study groups. They were studying out of the little daily bread pamphlets. He had three different ones and would just select them at random for each group. It was so amazing. The things that we are reading and learning from God's Word was the things that those guys were dealing with in each particular group. And they're, and so they, they were like, are you setting this up? And I'm like, how would I set this up? <laughs> like, I have no idea what you guys are going through or what you're dealing with. I said, but somebody does know. And uh, so it was just amazing. And that's continued for five years. He was in jail for almost six months at this point. One day, a guard randomly showed up and told Eric to get dressed for court. Knowing he had no court scheduled, Eric insisted he had come for the wrong guy. I said, I've already been sentenced on everything. I've already gone through everything. And then I started thinking, uh-oh, maybe I'm getting in more trouble. So he gets dressed, and as he is being transferred to court, he's trying to talk to all the drivers and everyone he comes by to figure out what is going on. And no one knew. He finally gets to the courtroom. And uh, my public... A uh, defender comes over to me 
he kind of like fast walked over to me, you know, and sat down next to me. And I'm like all cuffed up, you know, shackles. And he's like, uh, I've never seen this before. Uh, apparently you wrote a letter to your probation officer. The judge got a copy of that letter and he wants you in here today because he wants to talk to you. And he goes, I've never seen this happen before. He says, so I'm going to let you do most of the talking. And I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> so I, I was pretty, pretty nervous. But almost immediately thereafter, they called my name. I go up there. And uh, that's what the judge said. The judge said, uh, I, I got a copy of the letter that you sent to your probation officer. And he's like, you're right. Some of the stuff that you said is correct in that letter. And I did sentence you based on some of these things that looks like there was some miscommunication there. And he said, so I wanted you in here today because I'm not really sure what I want to do. Somehow that meant to me as my cue to talk. So I'm immediately like, your honor, may I address the court? <laughs> and he's like, sure, go ahead. And they just begin to tell him a very watered down version of what I just told you. And these were all true things. I said, I blamed everybody in my life. I think I even blamed my kids for me being leading the life that I was leading. And I said, and the truth is, I told him, I said, I found the Lord. I've given my life to him. And I said, and I know that all this is my fault. And I said, and worse yet, I know I've said all this before. And I can tell you the only thing that I can do is ask you for an opportunity. And if you give it to me, then I can show you. That's it. And he looked at me and he looked at my attorney. About this time, my attorney says, it's true, Your Honor. This is not the same man that we locked up. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, that's a pretty, pretty nice thing for you to say. Thank you. And the judge looks at him and he looks back at me and he looks down at the papers in front of him and he looks back up at me. And for the first time ever, I, I seen something in that judge that I'd never seen in a judge before, that he was somebody that really cared about me, you know? And he's like, I'm going to give you this opportunity. He's like, I want to see you know, and the thing is, I was mad at him when he didn't get the opportunities before. But the truth is, he shouldn't have. He shouldn't have. He was making the right decision. I was only angry because it was against me. And, and it should have been. It should have been. So he told me, he said, I'm going to give you an opportunity. He says, we're going to take off that last six months. And he says, so you'll be going home. And he figured it's like 40 days. And he's like, you'll be on probation. And I'm like, for the first time ever in my life, Your Honor, that is perfectly fine with me. I, I, because I probably need that. I need that guidance. And uh, I remember this. So I'm handcuffed and I'm walking out of the courtroom. And the first question I said, because I knew at that moment who was orchestrating this. And I said, Lord, are you sure this is the right thing to do? Because I'd gotten to a point where I thought maybe this is where I should be is in jail, you know? And that day I realized. One thing that I still know to this day is that God is sovereign, completely in control. We look around the world and it doesn't look like it, but he is. He really is that much in control. And, and he proved it. He showed me. And he's, he's still been showing me. He's been showing me that for the last four or five years. His life looks nothing like it used to look. He has a job now. He married a wonderful woman. His kids are back in his life. He has a home and a life full of things that he cares about. I mean, it's amazing. And it's all because he's a God of restoration. And he's been restoring my life for the last five years. And you know what else he's doing? Teaching me to be a man instead of that little lost boy that I was almost my entire life. For 47 years, I was 47 years old. And I was like a 15-year-old boy. Really was. Wow. So was the last time you did drugs, that last time, it was the date that you said? November 7, 2017 is my clean day, but November 6, 2017 is last time I did drugs. And you didn't have to go through like rehab or anything? You just withdrawed in, in jail? I did withdraw in jail. And it was pretty gross for a week or two. Pretty uncomfortable. And it's funny. So, so that's another thing that I do is I celebrate recovery on Friday nights. It's in a woman's halfway house, <laughs> if you can imagine that. After Eric got out of jail the last time, God is still orchestrating everything in his life. I was clean, and I knew that that's what I wanted in life, you know. I was six months clean when I got out of jail that time, and I knew that my life was different. I knew that I had a father that loved me 
unconditionally and that he was moving mountains in my life. And I was like, I don't even want anything to do with drugs. In fact, I would say I was delivered from it. And, uh, well, I get a phone call. The woman that was going to be my ex-wife at that point in my life, her sister was in a halfway house and her dad called me and said, Hey, would you like to go to this meeting? You know, it was a celebrate recovery meeting and it's open to the public. And I actually had plans with somebody else that night. And so for the first time ever in my life, I was like, yes, I would love to go to be supportive of her, but I'm busy. And I remember thinking to myself, and I actually mean it, <laughs> you know, I'm not just making over a story. I have something to do. And I said, well, I made these other plans. I said, but next week, if you go, I'll, I would love to go and I'll plan on it. And then we hang up the phone. Well, then the person that I had plans with called me and canceled because I already, I knew this thing about God. I was like, oh, okay. I see what you're doing. You were making a way for me to get this. So I just said, this is amazing. And I called him and he said, well, we're not going now. And I said, well, then I can still go, right? And he says, yeah. And I'm riding a bicycle, okay? And you have a car. I'm riding a bicycle. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to get So I went, got dressed real quick, and I'm racing over there. And I'm praising the Lord the whole way. I'm like, this is amazing. You knew that I didn't want to cancel my plans because I'm trying to be, you know, I'm trying to be dependable and responsible. And I made plans, and I wanted to be that guy that kept my plans. But you made a way. You had them cancel with me. Now I'm available to go and be supportive of my sister-in-law. I was like, that's amazing. I'm like, this is great. And I'm pedaling over there, you know, and I get there and I walk in and I sit down the media starts and uh, the first or second person shared. And I was like, oh man, you got me here for me, didn't you? Because <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I got Jesus. I don't need any of these meetings. I don't need any of that. But I didn't know. I didn't know that we're made for community. We're made for community. We're made to be in groups. We're meant to have that. And that was just him saying, yeah, you need that. You're here to be supportive too, but you also need community and you need recovery and you need to continue to, to be around other people and learn how to do life, you know? Eric never stopped attending those meetings. That was four years ago. And about a year and a half into attending them, they were looking for a new group leader. They were trying to put another woman in there. And I didn't want to be in that position. I thought, man, this is a woman's halfway house. A man's got no reason to be in this position in, in here. And uh, so they kept trying to put somebody else in there and it kept failing. And then finally, the executive director came to me and said, well, this is what God wants. So you're the leader. I'm so inspired as Eric speaks to being taught by God. Even his respect towards women changed. Eventually, he divorced that second wife and wound up with this amazing woman he is now married to. And you know me, I love a good love story. We met in high school. We met one time. We were never friends. We had friends that were friends. And, but we were never actually around each other in any other setting. And we only met one time at high school. It wasn't an extremely small high school or anything, you know, but we had no relationship at all. I was scared of Facebook when I was on drugs, believe it or not. It just like, it just made me paranoid. I was like, I don't want anybody to know anything about me. <laughs> and so when I didn't feel like that any longer, I began, you know, being a part of Facebook limitedly. And I would find people from high school. Well, and I recognized her. It's a funny story. I thought she, her name was different than what it actually was. I thought I remembered it wrong. So, so anyway. <laughs> Long story short, I just was very attracted to her looks and the way that she talked to people and the way that she represented herself. He took an interest in her posts. One day I was looking at one of the posts and I just heard the Lord clear as day say to me, she's going to be in your life. And I was like, what does that mean? What does that mean exactly? That's so mysterious. Like as a friend, like, I mean, we're already Facebook friends, you know, <laughs> you know, all these things. But I didn't know what that meant. But the thing that I did do at that point is I really started paying attention. You know, like I would look at how she talked to people. I'm going to look at the different things that she was doing in her life. It was just very attractive to me. And for a while, I thought that she had somebody in her life. And then all of a sudden, I noticed that there wasn't anymore. And so I'm really paying attention, you know. Ooh. And uh, 
Yeah. And, and she was going to, through some things and I wanted to be, that was this new thing that I had in my life, which caring about people on a deeper level and, and wanting to be there for them and be supportive of them. And, uh, yeah, so that's what I was doing then. And we just became friends and we stated that very clearly. That's all either one of us had time for was friendship. And, uh, as a man and a woman become friends and, uh, both are believers, you begin to set boundaries and you begin to say these things. This is how this is going to be. And we can't be in this situation and we can't be in that situation. We're going to be mature and responsible about it. You know, and then the conversation since we're all, it's why well, I prayed for you, but I just always thought you would be a man. You know, I just figured that God would put a man in my life to be this. And, and she laughed and uh, she said, God has a sense of humor. And I said, what does that mean? And uh, she told me later that she had this similar thing that she was praying for a friend, that she needed a friend in her life. Uh -huh. Yeah. So it was cool. And so after uh, months of friendship, we fell in love and we both said it one night and we're like, are we supposed to be on this? You know? and, and we thought it through and we dated for a year and then uh, we got married just a little over a year ago now. Love is so magical. It can even make a 52 year old man giggle and get all cute. I just loved listening to him talk about her. She knows what she wants in life and she's very dependable, very responsible. And yeah, she's a, she's a great person. I, I love her in my life. Although sometimes because of those qualities, she calls me on my BS <laughs> and I'll never forget before we got married, the Lord said, she will cause you to seek humility. And I thought that's gotta be good. <laughs> <laughs> but let me tell you, those are the things that I struggled with for so long, but I've been learning, I've been growing. I love how when telling these stories, he truly has let God lead every decision. It's so inspiring. And he says it's so factual. With God at the helm, his life has taken a complete 180. I'm in a worship band now. I'm just starting to sing. That's a whole nother story, but I've always had a fear of singing in front of people. And uh, I'm just starting to do that. I have this great leader. He's like, 15 years younger than me, I swear he's older than me spiritually. <laughs> and he is just so supportive and so caring. And he just knows how to put you in the right situation where it's, it's sink or swim. You know what I mean? And it's not just me. I see it with everyone around him where he coaches them up, calls them to a higher level, you know, and just, it's just, it's just amazing to have people like that in your life because back then, when I was growing up, I always wanted to be the guy with all the answers. And that in itself is deceptive. And you're setting yourself up for failure because it's, you're always the top dog in the room. Well, what is, how can you learn anything? How can you learn anything? And so, you know, you end up doing surrounding yourself with people that have no care about life and what to do in life. I was setting myself up for failure the whole time. Didn't know it. I get to preach. I don't know, five, six times a year, being a, a leader and celebrate recovery in a woman's halfway house. That's taught me so much about being a, a godly man, um, being a father, a father figure. And I mean, the Lord was answering all kinds of prayer because, you know, when I wanted my kids back in my life, I remember distinctively being like, I don't know how to do this. I've never learned. I mean, I'm kind of a child still and learning not to be, but. But how am I going to lead children? How, what am I going to do? I just felt like I missed so much. And how do you uh, approach that? You know. And, but the Lord had a plan the whole entire time. He puts me in a leadership position in a woman's halfway house because where I really needed that is to be a father to my daughters. So it's just all these things and all these revelations as life has been going on for the last five years. And uh, so let's see, there's that. Gosh, I'm in martial arts. That's something I've wanted to do my entire life. And I've had that opportunity. In fact, I'm getting ready to test for my black belt this oh. month, June 1st today. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So there's just, I mean, it just looks nothing like it used to look. But the thing that, that I think everybody needs to hear is it doesn't matter how old you are, what you've done. 
it's so easy to think that we can't come back from that, but but it's not true. God can restore and reconcile and build and grow things that we think that can't be done, but it can be. It can be. And that's what I think that people need to hear about my stories. I don't know how many times, but I started giving up when I was really young. It took me all the way till 47 years old to begin to want to grow and, and learn and be somebody different. So if anything, I hope that somebody hears that because it's never too late. It's not. And with that, I asked, and I'll always ask, what do you wish people saw beyond your picket fence? This is what I want people to see, Jesus Christ. That's what I really want people to see. Because when my life began, it also it began to be that I don't want people to see me. I want people to see what he has done. And it's true. It's true. It's real. And he can do it in their lives. First Timothy 1.15, Paul says that he's the worst sinner that ever has been. Well, I, I relate to that. I get that. And he saved him just like he saved me because he wants to show that the great patience that he has and how much that he loves each of us. It's not like, it's not like he looked at me and said, nah, this is the guy I want to save. He looks at every one of us and says that. I want you to have life, real life, spiritual life. We think life just means we're breathing, but that's not really life. If you're not alive spiritually, you're not really alive. My point is, is he says, I came to give you life and life abundantly. And that's amazing. And that's what is doing that. And just that promise alone told me everything else he said is true too. The reason that, that I love addicts is because they have looked into the darkness. I mean, they have really looked into it. They know what it's about. I mean, we need help. We need a savior. And all the fighting and the struggling and everything I did, it was really just looking for what he offers freely as soon as you surrender. That's all it was. I was always looking for him. I just didn't know it was him. This has been another episode of Beyond the Picket Fence. If you have a story to share, please reach out to me through my social media or at beyondwithchelsea at gmail.com. If you like the show and you'd like to support it, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash beyondwithc. I don't actually drink coffee, so it's actually just going to go to like helping with production costs and everything. But yeah. I'll link all of that in the show notes. And remember to always be kind because you never know what's going on beyond the picket fence.